0: Did you all think that our acolyte was going to come and give the sermon today? I have yet to talk him into doing that. How many of us have made uh, New Year's resolutions and failed to keep them? The experience of making New Year's resolutions is as universal as our failure to keep them, is it not? Whether it's going to the gym more, or watching less TV, or making dietary changes, or picking up a new instrument and trying to learn it, we find that a few weeks into our new lifestyle change, there's a part of us that pulls in the opposite direction, the part of us that doesn't feel like driving to the gym tonight, that wants to watch Jeopardy and eat pizza, that becomes too impatient with practicing scales on the piano, and so we give up. We've all been there. We've all been there. I have yet to meet a person that can say, I kept all of my New Year's resolutions. If you met that person, you would probably want to punch them in the face. But if you met that person, they they are lying. But it's not just in resolutions for self-improvement that we struggle in this way. We find the struggle going on at a moral level in our lives, in our souls. We find ourselves at war with ourselves when we try to do right or when we try to avoid doing destructive things. Not only do I find it difficult to give away my hard-earned money to a hungry child in another country, I find it difficult to keep from overindulgence in general. Not only do I find it difficult to be kind to others who share different views than me, I'm prideful about how right I always am. And in this inner struggle that we all experience, we find that the reality of sin is far more true and alive in us than we'd like to believe. The writer G.K. Chesterton once said that original sin was the only part of Christian theology you could actually prove. Just take a look around at the world or at yourself. There are things we know to be virtuous true, holy, and good, but we lack the energy to pursue them. Likewise, we know some things to be unholy, self-indulgent, prideful, destructive. And even though we hate that we are drawn to such things, we find ourselves giving in more than we care to admit. But sin has appeal. It calls out to us. You need to get the last word in. No one's going to catch this. Maybe you don't need to buy it, but you deserve it. That voice is always telling us we're going to gain something from our bad decisions while those decisions are actually shaping our souls in rather destructive ways. But it is a constant struggle to resist the seductive pull of sin, whether it's refraining from speaking ill of someone, forgiving something from the past, or saying no to an addiction that is harming us, or giving up personal security For someone who has nothing. This is the burden of having free will. This is the burden of having free will. We're responsible to make godly decisions that form Christ-like character in us. And too often, it's the case that we don't. Now, if you want to follow along, we're going to look at Paul, Paul's uh, letter to the Romans again and keep with our, our discipleship series in Romans. And we are in chapter 7 today. It's in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're just going to look at the beginning of this passage. And it starts like this. Paul says... That he is sold, he says, I am sold into slavery under sin. Now, what you have to understand about what Paul is doing here, and the best way to think about this is if you've ever been to a play and you've seen an actor come out and do a monologue, they come and they sit on a stool or something and the spotlight shines on them and they're the only one on stage and they're talking almost like they're talking to themselves but they're trying to get a point across about something. That's kind of what Paul is doing in this passage. When he says, I, throughout this passage, he's referring to the whole span of humanity. He's referring to the whole problem that humanity finds themselves in, this struggle. He says, I am sold into slavery under sin. This is his way of um, emphasizing the unfortunate inheritance that humans have. They're controlled by a sinful nature that is hostile to God and his purposes. We've inherited the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Paul believes that anyone who is in the least bit spiritually sensitive understands this about themselves. They're aware of this conflict. I don't know about you, but I am made aware of this conflict nearly every day of my waking life. Every time someone tailgates me, I am torn between cursing and forgiving. Every time there's an opportunity for self-advancement, I'm torn between my own pride and ego and the humility of that Christ requires of me. In the heat of the moment, we don't think twice about our decisions, but shortly after, we're aghast at how easy it is for us to take the sinful path. Paul explains it like this. In rather schizophrenic language, he says, I, say, I, he says, I don't even understand my actions. I, I do what I don't want to do, and the things that I hate, that's what I do, and I just don't understand what's going on inside of me. You see, this is the feeling that you get uh, at the end of the day when you think about the things that have happened throughout the day and you think to yourself, I can't believe I overreacted in anger like that. Or I could have spent an hour of my day helping them out and I chose to ignore them instead. Or I told myself at the beginning of the day I was going to spend time with the Lord today and I neglected that once again. And you think, gosh, it's true. It's true. I'm constantly failing to do the right thing. And not only that, I, don't, I often do the things I know to be wrong. So what's the solution to this spiritual schizophrenia, this spiritual conflict? Can we master this inner conflict? There's a story about Dwight Eisenhower when he was only 10 years old. His older brothers were going out trick-or-treating because it was Halloween and his mother told him that he would be staying home that night because of his age. He was so full of anger and frustration, he went outside and he began to punch an apple tree in his front yard over and over until his little 10-year-old hands were bloodied. And finally his father came out and restrained him and sent him to his room. And a while later, Mrs. Eisenhower came up to bind his wounds And she said to him, uh, and she was quoting from Proverbs chapter 16, and she said, He who conquers his own soul is greater than he who conquers a city. And Dwight said that that encounter with his mother affected him the rest of his life. But if you've ever read about Eisenhower's life, you know that for the rest of his life, he continued to have an untamed temper, frequently falling into bouts of rage when things aggravated him. He was notorious in some circles for his violent outbursts. It would seem that he never conquered his own soul. But here's the question. Do any of us, can any one of us escape from the bondage to sinful desires that lead us to anger, to lying, to lust, to greed, to selfishness? Or do we just wave a flag of surrender and pray God's mercy excuses us? Speaking on behalf of humanity again, Paul says this, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And all this time, he's been speaking in this monologue, but now here's what he does. He sort of changes character, and he, he breaks away from the monologue, and he comes in with his own voice, and he proclaims this, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying, Though we cannot master ourselves with our own will and resources, while we despair of the warring desires within us, there is someone who has come to rescue us. There is someone who has come to empower us with his own strength. And his name is Jesus. You see, there are two big Problems with trying to conquer sinful desires within us by mere willpower and personal effort, or by simply trying to be rule keepers. And the first problem is this we will always fail. We will always find ourselves failing and falling prey to temptation, missing opportunities to love and serve others. But the second problem is even bigger. We will view our moral lives as a list of do's and don'ts rather than as a spiritual battleground in which we find ourselves drawing closer and closer to Jesus, becoming more dependent on his power and his presence at work within us, calling out to him in those times of struggle. This is the battleground where Christian character is formed, where we share in God's holiness, And resist the work of evil. So, if both of these are mistakes, then what's the answer to our conflict with sin? You see, the gospel speaks to both of these problems, to both of these mistakes. First, it reminds us of our frequent failures, the choices we make to serve ourselves rather than God. And it reminds us of our need for patience and forgiveness. And that is just what the gospel of God's grace gives us. Forgiveness, patience, mercy. And the gospel speaks to the second problem by reminding us that in our own strength, we often can't, often don't want to, quite frankly, do the right thing. But the gospel says we are united with one who is perfect, who is always present to us, and who enables us, To carry out his will. In our gospel reading today Jesus says come to me all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, what is this business about a yoke? Yokes were often a symbol of oppression and hard labor. If you've never seen a yoke, it's one of those big wooden things where that, that goes around the necks of oxen and binds them together with double strength as they pull really heavy loads in carts behind them. So it was an, it was an image in the ancient world of oppressive labor. And if you read later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says of the scribes and Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. He speaks of the legalistic religion that many had fallen into, scrupulously obeying the moral law with mere moral effort, all the while missing the whole point of walking in relationship with God. But Jesus offers a different kind of yoke one that is not a symbol of oppressive labor. His yoke is one that binds his disciples to him in a relationship of learning. The word disciple means one who learns. And when we put on this yoke, we aren't being freed from the demands of righteousness. We aren't being set free from following God's law. We are being bound in a personal relationship to one who enables us to fulfill them. There's a big difference. This yoke links us to a master who is patient and forgiving when we fail, but powerful and present to make us victorious over sin. He imparts his own righteousness to us, making us able to joyfully live for God. It should never be the case for any Christian to say, I'm giving in, I am mastered by this sin, I will never overcome it. Because we have been given access to the one who himself will help us overcome sin. So many Christians go through life simply trying to keep the rules or do occasional nice things. As if these were annual membership dues that kept them in some kind of club. And that's so unfortunate, not just because it misunderstands the gospel of grace, but because it is possible to do that your entire life and not have a real relationship with Jesus. You see how the Christian life is so much more than keeping a list of rules. It's so much more than that. It's about the kind of people we are becoming, the kind of people God is making us into. Listen how brilliantly C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures, and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God, and with its fellow creatures, and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. You see, it's so important for us to see that how even small decisions in moral conflicts that we have, even small decisions made continually over a long period of time either make us more like Jesus or less like Jesus. But our struggle, with in the presence and the patience and the power of our Master to whom we are yoked and to call on his name more often, I want to close with a prayer written by someone else. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me. Lord, our God, you know who we are. People with good and bad consciences, satisfied and dissatisfied, sure and unsure people. Christians out of conviction and Christians out of habit. Believers, half-believers and unbelievers. But now we all stand before you in all our inequality equal in this, that we are all in the wrong before you and among each other, but also in that your grace is promised to and turned toward all of us through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.